When I first started calling upon my wife in the courting process, I'd look at her and her dad. I'd be sitting in the living room with them both. That was the nature of our early dating years. It was me and her, her dad, and her mama. And I could just see in his eyes the disappointment. When they sing like that, I feel like the disappointment. I could just stay back there and keep singing, couldn't you? Man, it's good. I love that song. That's Rhett, my little six-year-old's favorite song. He sings, you're worthy of it all. And he just worships the Lord. And when I think about that song and I think about the nature of what I'm about to share with you through the preaching of God's word, you must connect what I'm about to say to the Lord's worth. If you have your copy of God's Word, I want you to find the book of Romans. And when you find the book of Romans, I'd like for you to find the 10th chapter. The book of Romans follows the four Gospels, then the Acts of the Holy Spirit, or the Acts of the Apostles, and then the book of Romans. Therefore, it is the sixth book in your New Testament. It is the longest letter written by the Apostle Paul. The Gospels have four writers. You know them by the name of the book. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the authors of those Gospels. Luke wrote the book of Acts as a volume two to his volume one, the Gospel of Luke. Then the New Testament is ordered from there by all the Pauline letters, basically from the breadth or the width or the length of the letter to the most brief letters that Paul wrote. So his longest letter was the book of Romans, and then they are put in that order by length. And then the other apostles who wrote also are put into the New Testament, and then, of course, John ends it with the Revelation. We find ourselves in the book of Romans this morning because I want to share with you about the ultimate reason for you and I being here. People are looking for a cause. Last week we zoomed in and we talked about our church. This week we're going to zoom out. And as we zoom out, I want you to ponder with me for just a few moments on how people are looking for some sort of cause in their life. Think about all the causes that people are now very passionate about. You may be passionate about a particular cause. I was reminded of several this week as I thought about this message. I think about the people in this room who are cancer survivors, and now you volunteer with organizations like the American Cancer Society, and you are proud to be a part of that cause to fund research in order to eradicate cancer or to greatly improve the treatments. Other people find themselves involved in social causes. You may have a passion for the underserved or those who struggle with being poor and impoverished in our community. Others are passionate about political causes. We know that our nation is 
extraordinarily divided right now politically. And what that means is, is that as people get more involved, they become more devoted to causes that further cause them to see their need to push their ideas in order to solve the problems that we're facing as a nation. All of you have causes that are more for entertainment. Yesterday, you cheered for your favorite team. Perhaps you did the same thing on Friday night. For some of you, your cause is adoring your grandchildren and spoiling them. And when you look at your calendar and your money, a lot of it is spent on loving on those grandchildren that you adore far more than you did raising the children who gave you the grandchildren. We all tend to find causes in our life. And when we think about cause, a lot of times in leadership's discussions, we tie it to people's why. It's important to find your why. Like, why do you do what you do? The most successful, most mature people I know stay connected to their why. They, they don't just focus on the what or the how, but they know why am I doing what I'm doing. In essence, really, the preaching of God's word weekly reminds you not only of the what and the how, it ought to remind you of the why. Why do we worship first and then learn second? Because to adore the Lord in song is to remind us of our why. Why can I bring him my struggles? Why can I submit to his will? Why can I recognize that I can trust him in difficult situations? Because of who he is. Now that I know my why, I'm ready for some what. I'm ready for some how. I'll take some win, Lord because I got my why. Churches that lose their why die. Churches that lose their why die. Think about all the reasons that we gather. What are the things that happen here on a weekly basis as we focus in and then focus out? We worship. We learn about the Lord. We fellowship. I've already seen some of it happening this morning. And then if you want to transition that from the activities we do to the characteristics of what we do, there's unity and love and joy. And then when you feel unity and you feel love and you feel joy and you're in the context of fellowship together, you then by default minister to one another. Last night I was on the phone with a friend of mine who's facing a major surgery. And the last thing I said was, hey, if there's anything that Laurel and I can do for you during this time, let us know. And he said, Likewise, if you ever need me, we were ministering to one another. You do this often. I, I hope you do. I know many of you do. But you know what this list has in common? You know what all these have in common? You could say, well, Pastor, these are all signs or activities in a healthy church. They are. They are. But they all get better in heaven. Our worship will be unbelievable in heaven. Our fellowship won't be hindered by sin. You think we're unified now. Can you imagine when we get each other out of the way? Can you imagine the joy of having caskets and hospitals and funerals and tears and racism and hatred and visceral, visceral uh, divisions among people behind us? Where all fear is gone. Can you imagine what the joy and the unity and the hope and the love and the ministry to one another? We're not going to sit in a worship service for all of eternity. We're going to live. We will rule and reign and we will have responsibilities and we will function. We will be given by God a new heaven and a new earth 
that will be free from any hindrance to love and joy and peace and fellowship and happiness and worship and talk about learning about God. Today, I hope you learn something in small group. I hope you learn something from his word. But can you imagine what it will be like to see Jesus, to speak to him, to, to embrace him, to feel his arms around us, to, to engage the Lord and to sit down with Paul and Timothy and Ruth and Esther and Moses and Abraham and to learn from them. So all of the things we do in and around this building are rich and good, but they're only going to get better. Save one. Our mission. Our mission to see more people come to Christ will end one day. There is no evangelism in heaven. There's no need for a gospel witness in heaven. We will declare the greatness of God, but we'll declare it to the person beside us who understands the greatness of God. So this is our why. This is why we are here. This is our moment. This is the reason we exist in this place and in this time with this group of people. We will give an account. We will give an account corporately as a church, and we will give an account individually as sisters and brothers in the Lord. And when we give an account, we will be asked, what did you do to spread my glory into the darkest hearts and darkest parts of your world. When I mention missions to you, what do you think about? There's a long list of stuff that comes up. It's not necessarily bad. Trips, fundraising, logistics, materials, strategy, demographics, culture, language, adventure. I've experienced all those things. I admire people who understand these things and do these things well. These are not bad or sinful things to dwell on. But at the core of the mission is people. Missions is about people. Let me give you two numbers to think about. 11,948. That's the number of identified people groups in the world. Now, what's a people group? I'm glad you asked. A people group is the largest group through which the gospel can flow without encountering significant barriers of understanding and acceptance. That's how the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention and many other missiologists defined people group. 11,000 of them. Now let me give you another number. 3,175. Not people, not populations, not nations. 3,175 unreached or unengaged people group. What's an unreached or unengaged people group? It's a people group where evangelical Christians make up less than 2% of the population. Further, it is called unengaged when there is no church planning methodology consistent with evangelical faith and practice underway in any form or shape of Christianity. We're not, we're not talking about Baptistic faith. We're not talking about Pentecostal faith. We're talking about any form of evangelical Christianity can't be found in certain parts of the world among over 3,000 of the known people groups 
in the world. Now, why do I share that with you? I share that with you because we have been immensely blessed. And the temptation of a church that is well-funded, well-attended, my prayer, well-led, the temptation of a church that has been well-supplied and enjoys the favor of our community and a season of great numerical and spiritual growth is that we say, I have found my place. I'm going to throw it in neutral, and I'm coasting to glory among the comfort and the bubble of the people around me. And yet, that's not why we're here. We are here to accomplish the mission. Now, when we talk about engaging a people group, I think one of the greatest examples is Paul. In fact, what I'd like to do for just a brief moment is show you one man's relationship to his people group. Paul loved his people. Who were his people? Well, of course, they were the Jews. No one's more qualified to call him or herself Jewish than the Apostle Paul. He was so devoted to his people and the religion of their day that he was zealous for it. He persecuted any threat toward Judaism and longed to hold the identity of the Jewish people as the highest regard for the priority of his life. And then he met Christ. And when he met Christ, he felt an especial desire, an especially significant desire to say to his people, we missed the Messiah. Will you believe upon him? Now, obviously, we could spend weeks and months. I've not attempted to preach through the book of Romans yet. I may be out of time. I'm 44 now. If I start next year, I, I, hopefully I'd finish it before I died. It is a deep and rich book, and I do plan to preach through it verse by verse one day in the near future. But if we were to unpack the book of Romans, what we would find is that it is the greatest theological treatment of the main truth of the gospel, which is we are saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through God's grace alone. This is the whole thesis of the book of Romans. But inside this thesis that Paul unpacks, that scholars have filled libraries uh, in and through with information about the language and the argument and the richness of the book of Romans, is this wrestling match Paul has with the dilemma of his own people. And in the midst of that, we get some great truth for all of us to our people, to the contemporaries of our life, to the reached and unreached people groups of our day. And we get one of the most famous verses in Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've ever done evangelistic training, you've been exposed to the Romans' road to salvation. And the Romans' road to salvation is the identification of a handful of verses that lay out the gospel 
of God's love, how the wages of sin are death, but the gift of God is eternal life. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And one of the verses that is a pillar in the Romans road is Romans chapter 10, verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The good news of that verse is in two words, everyone and will. In other words, God does not discriminate. Anyone who would come to him by faith he will save. I'm so thankful that that verse does not say some people who call upon the name of the Lord might be saved. That would be a very difficult gospel to put my hope in. But Paul says, and by default, the Holy Spirit through Paul, thus the words of God say, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is why we ought to present the gospel indiscriminately and responsibly. Indiscriminately, meaning we share the gospel with anyone who would listen. Responsibly would mean we share the whole gospel. We don't need any more check this card, raise your hand, hurry and get everything right and then go about your merry way. We need a lordship gospel that calls people to faith and repentance in Jesus. And a gospel that says he demands your whole life. He'll take you battered, beat up, bruised and sinful, but he will not leave you that way. That's the gospel we need to present to people. So Paul does this in this book. And then his mind is drawn to his people. And in his people, we begin to see the dilemma he's facing. It hurts him that his people have not fully accepted the gospel. Now, when I say people, I'm not referring to individuals. There were many Jewish individuals who got saved. Paul, though, was burdened for the whole nation of the Jews. These were his people group. Thus we begin reading in verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. And he quotes Psalm 19, for their voice has gone out to all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. Verse 19, but I ask, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, and he quotes Deuteronomy 32, I will make you jealous of those who are not of a nation, who, who are not a nation, who a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Or with a foolish nation, I will make you angry. In verse 20, then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask me. And finally, but of Israel, he says, all day long I have held out my hands to disobedient and contrary people. You know what Paul knew? Paul knew the requirements of the gospel. Look at verse 14 again. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? It's four rhetorical Questions. This is so important in our understanding of missions. Look at the progression. I'll put it on the screen. It's real simple. People are not saved until they confess Christ. No one makes heaven. No one is saved without confessing 
Christ as their Lord and Savior. Jesus said this, very clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is called the exclusivity of the gospel. And by the way, amidst all the discussion of same-sex marriage and the ordination of women or the gifts of uh, tongues, all the things that Christians debate or professing Christians supposedly debate, this is the most controversial belief that the gospel is exclusive. It is not exclusive in who it can be applied to. Anyone can come. That's what verse 13 says, right? Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It is exclusive in that there is no other way. Often it has been said by people trying to make it more inclusive. Well, there is a mountain, and on the mountain there is God, and there are many paths to reach God. That's called universalism. It is a lie. Again, I'm not saying this. Jesus said this. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through or by me. So we know people are not saved until they confess Christ. But people don't confess Christ until they believe. In other words, the confession in and of itself is not the saving act. It is the faith in the person that saves them, and the confession is the outward profession and evidence of the inward faith. This is what we explain to people when they're baptized. Your water baptism has not saved you. It is your outward confession through the ceremonial act of baptism, according to the teachings of Jesus and the Great Commission, that gives witness to faith having already taken root, which is one of the reasons why we practice believer's baptism. We don't baptize our infants. We don't baptize children before they're understanding and ready. We want to see salvation first by faith, which is evidenced by confession, and then they profess publicly through baptism. People don't confess Christ until they believe. People can't believe in Christ until they hear. They must hear the gospel. People don't hear until Christ is preached. Christ is not preached unless someone goes, and no one goes until they are sent. This is the mission of God. This is his plan. This is our why. It's one of the reasons why if you have your Bible open and you're in this passage, you'll notice uh, in verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Now that word of Christ is really the best summation of the gospel. Yesterday morning I was up early and my six-year-old Rhett, the one who likes you're wordy of it all. He says wordy, not worthy. We're working on that. He struggles with his D's and his L's. He uh, and I were driving before daylight to uh, go to a bird hunt, and we were talking, and I said, Red, I'm going to pray for us today. He said, okay, and uh, took my hat off, and I prayed as we're driving down the road. I do not recommend closing your eyes when you pray when you're, when you're driving. I don't, and so I was praying, and, uh, and, uh, and when I got through praying, you know, um, one of the convictions I have is that I, I don't want Sundays to be the only time my children hear me talk about the Lord. Um, and so I said, Red, isn't the Lord good? He said, he sure is, Dad. I said, he's so good to us. He said, yes, sir, he did. He's from the back seat. He says, you know, he came and he lived. And he died on the cross. And they put him in a hole 
in a cave, and they put a boulder over it, and three weeks later, he came alive <laughs> on the very first Easter. I was not alive then, Dad. I said, I know, you weren't around. He said, no, were you? I said, no, I wasn't around. <laughs> he said, but some people were. I said, they were, they were. I said, they were. And I, I didn't even have the heart to correct his timeline there. It would have been just as good of a resurrection three weeks later as it was three days later. But that is the word of Christ. That is the message that we want to ingrain in our children. That this is not you and I attempting to better our lives. That this is not a social organization with religious undertones. That we are people who believe in an empty grave. We believe in the throne of God. We believe in the blood of Jesus. We believe our sins have been atoned for. And this is how people are saved. And this is what we will never be asked to do in heaven. There will be no one to witness to. And I know you have children to raise. I know you have a career. I know you have responsibilities. The Bible speaks to that. The Bible does not call us to move to communes and separate ourselves from the world. In fact, it's just the opposite. Jesus said, be salt and be light because the days are drawing near. I believe Jesus is coming back. I believe that. And I believe, as I've often said and joked with you lightheartedly, I don't know when, but I can tell you on the authority of God's word as your pastor, we're closer now than we've ever been. Because we're here. Every day is closer to that day. And so this is the requirement. But what hurt Paul was the rejection of the gospel. Because he began to ask the question, well, has Israel heard? And if they heard, have they understood? And he does so through using their book. Look at their Bible, and I'll show you what I mean. Look at verse 18. But I ask, have they not heard? Indeed they have. And then he uses Psalm 19.4 to show that God had declared his joy and his presence to the people of Israel for years. Their voice has gone out all the earth and their word to the ends of the earth. But if they heard, did they understand? You can hear the gospel without understanding it. This is why preaching and teaching the gospel is so important. But I ask, verse uh, 19, did Israel not understand? First Moses says, and he quotes Deuteronomy, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. So Paul is saying Moses told them, you understand, you're rejecting, and I'm going to go to other nations who will turn to me, and I'll make you jealous of them, even though they are but fools in comparison to your knowledge of the Lord God. They have no Mount Sinai. They have no splitting of the Red Sea. They have no creation account that is accurate according to Genesis, and yet they will receive. Isaiah picks up on it in verse 20. Then Isaiah is so bold as to say, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And this is one of the most unbelievable truths of the gospel. The gospel was never delivered first for the Jews to keep. It was delivered to the Jews to share with the world. The redemptive plan of God from Genesis to Revelation was always to redeem from every tribe and every tongue, every nation, every skin tone, every ethnicity, every culture, people who will be around the throne of heaven. This is the great picture 
of missiology in heaven. That every tribe and every tongue and every nation, the word nation in the New Testament is ethnos, is where we get our word ethnicity. Every people group will be around the throne declaring the greatness of Christ. In fact, missiologists believe that that has to happen before the Lord returns, that the gospel has to get to every people group. A fascinating story about the progression of the gospel is to look at what's happening today. It left Jerusalem. Where did it go? It went to northern Africa and the Mediterranean by the end of the second century. Some of the earliest churches in the 300s were in Ethiopia and Alexandria. And, see, and so we see it in the Mediterranean. We see it in northern Africa. Then it spreads up into Europe. It crosses the ocean into North America and into South America. And then now, where do we see the greatest movements of the gospel? Where is the church growing the most? It's in places like persecuted China and North Korea. It's all the way. And some missiologists believe that as it makes its way around the globe back to Jerusalem, it will usher in the return of Christ. I know not that day. I will not be preoccupied with that day. You ought not be enamored by that day. Don't be indifferent to it, but don't be infatuated with it. Worry about today. Yesterday's gone, tomorrow's not promised. Christ has given you today. But as we see this great grand scheme of God, all of a sudden Paul comes to the realization that his people right now are rejecting, and there will be a great revival among Israel when Jesus returns, but his people right now are rejecting, yet the gospel is going to other people who didn't even know what to look for. Now drop that into your life. Some of you in this room, like me, were born into a Christian home. You are raised by Christians. And so from an earliest age, you not only knew the things you did wrong, you knew about Jesus, like my children do. But I always appreciate talking to adults who were not raised with the gospel. Now, if you were raised in the South, you were raised in and around church culture. But you never understood the gospel until adulthood. And the reason I love your testimony, I'm not saying it's superior. All testimonies are God-glorifying. But the reason I love to talk to someone who has come to faith from a life of darkness, is that they will tell you in layman's terms, when I didn't even know I was looking, God was looking for me. Before I knew what I needed to do, he had set things in motion and worked in my life to draw me to himself. This is the great beauty of mystery of the gospel. On one hand, the gospel is our response to God by faith. We are held responsible for that. But on the other hand, once we receive by faith the grace of God, we look back on our life and realize he was working to draw us to himself long before we ever knew we needed him. And this then is the reception of the gospel, which happens in verse 21. Verse 20, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. And so Paul begins to shift his life to going to the Gentiles. If you, if you have your Bible, I, I very rarely ask you to do this, but, but, but very quickly, would you turn backwards to the left, oh, I don't know, five, six, eight pages, to the last chapter of the book of Acts, Acts chapter 28, Acts chapter 28. I'd like to finish this sermon by reading this. Now, by the time we get to the end of Acts, Luke has told us that Paul is imprisoned, and Paul, at this point, never is freed. 
Church history tells us he was executed by the Roman Emperor Nero. He had appealed his trial because of his Roman citizenship. At one point, he was under house arrest. Later, the intensity of the arrest was increased, but he was, because he was primarily a political and religious prisoner and not a threat for violence, allowed to engage people to teach and, and to do certain things. And we find in verse 23, the end of the book of Acts, when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers, talking about the Jews. From morning till evening, he expounded them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced. So right at the end of his life, Paul led some Jews to Jesus. And some were convinced, verse 24, by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through the Isaiah, the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For the people's hearts has grown dull with their ears they can barely hear and their eyes have been closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Now watch verse 28 because this is where you come in. Therefore let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and here it comes. They will listen. If you are born again today, my prayer is that the vast majority of you are and if you are not, I would love to talk with you about that. But if you are born again today, you're born again because your ancestors listened. Somebody listened to the gospel. Somebody listened to somebody who listened to somebody who listened to somebody who shared the gospel with you. And so what Paul says at the end of the book of Acts, as the church is continuing to go forward, is that there will always be people who reject, but there are always going to be people who receive. And so as much as it depends on us, we want to go and give every person the opportunity to hear the gospel. This is our why. You can close your Bibles, but don't you for one second think you're getting out early. Having given you a theological treatment of missions, let me tell you where we are as a church. I did this last week. I want to do it this week. Last week, we talked about us. This week, we're talking about going. Many years ago, like many churches, we adopted a simple Acts 1-8 strategy. Acts 1-8 is a verse, of course, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And Jesus has just given the Great Commission. He's about to ascend into heaven, and he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That would later happen on the day of Pentecost. It happens in any Christian's life when they're saved. And you will be my witnesses. And then Jesus tells them where? Jerusalem, all of Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Now, what many churches have rightly done is they said, well, that's a beautiful structure. Our Jerusalem is our influence, the influence that we can have in this community. Our Judea, well, that will be our region, our state, the Carolinas. Our Samaria, well, that will be our nation, North America. The places that you can get in your car and drive to without a passport. And then the end of the earth, well, that hadn't changed. It's still the end of the earth. And so everything we do at Church at the Mill in relationship to missions is structured around these four areas. 
So let's talk about our church, for example. Our church does not exist just to study the Bible here on Sundays. We exist to fellowship in the end that we lead people to Christ. You are the greatest outreach strategy of Church at the Mill. We don't have a visitation night. We don't have targeted mailings. We've used that stuff in the past. I'm not against that stuff. But let me tell you why people are being reached by our church. Every Sunday, someone will walk up to me and say, I'd like you to meet my coworker. Would you meet my cousin? Hey, I want you to meet my friend. We've known each other for years, and they've been struggling, and I invited them to church with me. When you are doing that, we, in essence, are covering every zip code of this county because you represent every zip code of this county. Now, I don't want you to think we've arrived, but think about this. I stand before you on the 25th day of September of this year. To date, this year, we've seen 168 people be baptized here at Church at the Mill. 168 people. That's a huge deal. I don't know what it'll be before the end of the year, but that's more than we've ever baptized in any one year in the history of our church. 58 of them were just a few Sunday nights ago in one service. God was so blessed, so gracious to allow us that opportunity. Let me give you some other examples of the things we do. This year, we bought 500 Bibles to be distributed at the Spartanburg County Detention Center. We run a his storehouse ministry that doesn't just hand out dry goods and paper products and things that people knew, need. We partner with every one of our clients that we serve, a member of our church, to develop a relationship with, him, with them to the end that we share the gospel. If you come on midweek, you'll see our older children packing backpack buddy backpacks because we know that underserved and underprivileged children in our county do not eat well on the weekends when they cannot have access to food that is provided by public education through the nutrition program. And so they're sent backpacks of food home every Friday, and our church is one of the largest suppliers in our community of that. Just a few others that got me excited. Uh, when we lost a young man tragically who was gunned down two streets uh, from here, our missions team mobilized and we fed the entire sheriff's department uh, and uh, our first responders breakfast the very next day and we sent people in to pray with them. We made ourselves available to counsel them and to love them and we mobilized to host that young man's funeral here so that we could minister to the community. I remember when I spoke to the father-in-law of the young man and told him what we wanted to do. It was my honor to say, and by the way, we would do this absolutely with no charge whatsoever. This is our honor to be able to serve you. Missions is not just getting on an airplane. It's about ministering in our own community as well. In the last eight months, we've given away $11,000 of tips from the cafe. Tips. You some caffeine-addicted, Jesus-loving people. 11,000. I don't know if you know this. Sometimes people will say, I don't think they ought to sell things in the church. We, we, we make nothing off the cafe. The cafe, 100% of the profits, after we cover the personnel and the supplies, we buy a lot of coffee beans. It goes to a different ministry in the community every month. Church at the Mill has never and will plan never to make a dime 
of selling anything from that cafe. It all goes right back to our community. Of course, we want to do this. By the way, that's more than we gave in all of 200, 2021. So let's talk about Judea. In Judea, I threw this image up a few years ago to you. I said, I want you to think about a multi-campus strategy. And here's the reason why I realize so many of you have not heard this before. If the goal was a beautiful building and a committed staff and a long-term pastor and, uh, and, and a steady flow of guests, we've reached all our goals. That can't be the goal. Churches are dying. When you leave today, if you drive to someone's home or you drive to lunch, no matter what direction you go from our parking lot, you will pass half a dozen churches that are dying. I'm not being critical. I'm not throwing rocks. Minister to many of them. Love to help churches in any way that we can, but they're dying. Over 85% of churches like ours in the state are plateaued or declining. They're dying. So, of course, we want to leverage our influence to help in other communities, but in our community, the one thing we have is people. It's not just about planters. It's about people. And so, after we moved into this facility, we launched the multi-campus strategy. I shared a little bit about that with you last, last year. And tonight, in downtown Woodruff, they will celebrate their one-year anniversary. In 221, 2021, we launched the Woodruff campus. And this year, they've baptized 24 folks and had 80 people complete the new member uh, process there in Woodruff. And in 2023, we hope and pray to launch our third campus. Even as recently as this week, I was in conversation with a sister church that is prayerfully considering it has not been made yet. The decision is not made, so it's certainly something I hold in confidence out of respect for them. But they are prayerfully considering handing their entire campus and all their assets to us where we will go in and relaunch a campus in another part of our county, preparing this year and launching it in 2023. And I think there are more to come. My prayer is, is that as we have a network of campuses which are not led by a video screen, but rather by young men that we train and raise up and teach to preach, that we will see these become functioning congregations that will then do the same thing. And then my long-term desire is that if the Lord would afford me another 20 years, I'll be 64, that out of a multitude of young men who've been raised up to preach, God will identify one to fill this pulpit when the time comes. I don't want to leave you leaderless. It's your decision, not mine. I'm not going to pick that person. And i got a long way to go and a lot of mortgage payments to make before that day. But, but I would love to see us have a network of men and women who are trained to lead the church so we're not wringing our hands wondering what the future holds. This is our Judea. And then, of course, we wanted to mobilize Woodruff. So let me tell you what they've done. In their first year... The Woodruff campus has given over 20,000 to local ministries in Woodruff. One of those is called 678, and it focuses on 6th through 8th graders. And that campus decided to provide them the funds for a van to transport middle schoolers to a Bible study to teach them the gospel. So we want the campuses to get busy about doing the work and not to just exist as dependents on the central campus. And they have done that with remarkable faithfulness. Now, when we get through Judea, we then come to Samaria, our North America. We are supporting three church plants in Boston today. And we've just started a partnership in Provo, Utah, among primarily communities filled with 
individuals who would identify members of the Church of Latter-day Saints, Mormons. Very, very much spiritually dark places. We've sent two teams there, and those two teams had over 50 gospel conversations with people trying to help them understand the gospel. When we think about that, we also think about the world. What are we doing in the world? Nearly half a million dollars has gone directly to the International Mission Board, the North American Mission Board, through cooperative program giving. We give well over a million away a year uh, to missions, and half of that goes to the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board for planting, sending missionaries, training. You've heard those leaders preach in this pulpit. Dr. Paul Chetwood is the president of the International Mission Board. Kevin Ezell is the president of the North American Mission Board. And these men love and respect you for your commitment to what God is doing in those places. But in addition to that, not all, but most of our trips and partnerships are with people who left us to go. In other words, we're not going to meet strange missionaries that we've not met before. We're going to meet missionaries who are from us. Currently, we're working over five continents, North America, including Central America, Europe, Africa, Asia, and Australia. This is pretty cool, I think. Two of our teams recently joined our friends in East Asia. I can't tell you their country, and I can't tell you their name for security reasons. Some of you may know them. And they went to a local village, uh, excuse me, a very rural village that has about 2,400 people in it. It took them a while to get there. And they were able to share the gospel with 11 people, including the mayor of the village, to help the missionary who's from Church at the Mill, lives full-time in East Asia, develop a relationship with this village where there are no known believers. There are no known believers in this area. And people from Church at the Mill, folks who were here this morning, walking around the concourse, went to this remote place to do that. I want more of that in my life and in the life of our church. Now, when we think about that brief update of where we are in missions, you then have to think, well, what's your call? My oldest son has expressed a call to ministry, and I'm grateful for that. He called me the other night, and he said, I think God's dealing with me about missions. And I said, son, when you were born, I told the Lord, you belong to him. And I said, son, as much as I love you and love to have you close, if you ever got on a plane with a one-way ticket and took your family to a place that's hard to make the gospel known to a people that don't have access to it, I will rejoice in that. If I can get there, I'll come see you. But we'll be together in heaven. We've done our job. You belong to the Lord. I'm just grateful he's wrestling with the call. He's young. Just before we hung up, I reminded him, you don't have to figure it out today, but you bet, better get your Western Civ average up. That needs to be figured out right now. <laughs> and make sure you work this weekend. So take care of the things you need to take care of, but prepare yourself for tomorrow. What are you supposed to do with this sermon? Some of you say, preacher, the last thing on my mind today when I came to church was getting on an airplane and going on a mission trip. Well, you know what? I don't have the right not to challenge you to recognize your call. Let me give it to you in four ways real quick. Think about it this way. First, pray. I want you to pray personally. I want you to pray corporately. Our missions team 
faced the greatest challenge of any team during COVID. I still preached, we still sang, but trips, partnerships, almost shut down. In fact, we had to go local like never before, which has been a blessing because so many of our local ministries involve internationals. But on October 7th at 8 o'clock, they're doing a missions prayer night. They're going to come pray on this campus for most of the evening, starting at 8 o'clock. You don't have to be a member of Church at the Mill. You're not going to be put on the spot. Nobody's going to be asked to pray in front of a large crowd. The last time they did this, it was phenomenal. We need to pray. You need to pray. Every week, you need to pray for somebody who doesn't know the Lord. Every week, you need to pray for a missionary friend that you have. Every week, you need to pray over your nieces, your nephews, your sons, and your daughters and say, God, I don't care what you do with their life. If you want to make them a plumber or an accountant, that's fine. But if you want to call them to the nations, that's fine too. Not only do you need to pray, you need to live. Your greatest mission to help our mission is to walk with Jesus. Your personal walk with the Lord is where your missions begins. Because then when you live, you need to share. You have to speak to people about the gospel. I was sharing my faith the other night, and a guy told me with an explicit word what he thought about religion. I still smiled and shared. I said, I'm sorry, that's been your experience. This is what Christ has done for me. You have to share the gospel. And then you got to go. And the good news is, is that with the resources we have, there's no way that you can't find a way to be involved in missions through Church at the Mill. Small group leaders, we want every one of you to have your small group connected to some local ministry or mission that we're partnering with. In fact, on November 20th at 3.30 over in the Student Center, anybody can come to a meeting the missions team's going to do where they'll walk through every trip in 2023. We want to give you a head start so you can plan and think about the trips that you can be involved in. Today, there was no card handed to you. There's no kiosk for you to visit because there's so much information, we couldn't bottleneck the concourse. But here's what I would say. Churchofthemill.com slash missions. When you go there, everything that we know available now is listed and every way in which you can get engaged is there. Missions is not an event, it's not a place, it's a lifestyle. You leverage your energy, your dollars, and your time to make our why the mission. I told the musicians they could take the day off at the conclusion of the service. I don't want to sing. I don't want to call you to the altar. You can't preach on missions and tell you to come down here. I want you to go out there. The invitation is when you leave those doors. I'm going to pray, and when I say amen and you open your eyes, our Connections pastor will be standing here with yet more families that have joined our church. They are the mission. And then he's going to dismiss you, and you're going to go. Whether you be 75 or 17, single or married, wealthy or broke as Hogan's goat, you can find a way to be involved in missions. And that is your why.